delighted to say I'm joined on Football CFB today by Jim Spence. Some people would call him the Duke of Dundee, but he's the rector of Dundee University. Jim, thanks for joining me. Good morning, Callum. Thanks uh, for having me. Very kind of you. The first question I've got for you, Jim, you're very experienced when it comes to Scottish football. You've covered the game for many decades. In your opinion, what's the state of play of our game at the moment because of this situation? Well, the state of play has altered uh, quite dramatically, I think, Callum, uh, with, with uh, the COVID-19 situation. I mean, uh, as we speak, it's a, a movable feast. It's changing by the day. None of us quite know uh, what's coming. I mean, as we speak, you know, and, and this is kind of half past 10 in the morning on a Tuesday, um, as we speak, it looks as though first and foremost to kick off will be the Premiership. Um, but by the looks of it, behind closed doors. Now, we don't know where the championship is at the moment. Um, we also don't know whether reconstruction might yet happen. Um, I know that Anne Budge has put forward her um, proposals to, to change the league for 3-14, some people suggesting a 16. So, although reconstruction seemed to have died the other week, it's back on the table. So, you know, there are so many imponderables at the moment that none of us know what is going on. So, I, I, I think... All we can do is hazard a guess, but in hazarding that guess, it can change in half an hour's time. So it's almost a pointless, it's almost a, a fruitless exercise, frankly, you know, trying to second guess what's, what's going on. In terms of yourself, if, if you were given the, the power to, to make a decision on reconstruction in the way that football in Scotland should be structured going forward, what would you do? Well, there's a combination of things. I mean, I, I, you know, we were on for a couple of hours on, on, on Sunday past with um, Davy Cormack, the new Aberdeen uh, chairman, and Alan Burrows, the, the Motherwell CEO, um, along with Darrell Broadfoot, who knows the SFA um, inside out, and Roger Mitchell, who, of course, at one time was head of the SPL. We had a terrific couple of hours chewing the fat about the game, so much to chew the fat on. I think what comes out of this, uh, or what came out of that, and, and what I would say to you on this is, it depends what it is you're looking for in football. I think first and foremost, football's bread and circuses. It's, it's entertainment. We want to be entertained. It's, all, it's also about tribalism. It's also about community. And that is the case whether, you know, whether it's Ross County, whether it's Brecon, Dundee United, Greenock Morton, Celtic, you know, whatever. It's about community, it's about tribalism, it's about family, it's about loyalty, it's about a million different kind of things that go into the mix. But at the end of the day, mainly, it's about competition, being entertained and winning. Now, I think the problem we have in Scottish football at the moment, and I use the term senior loosely because we've got a pyramid system, but we have 42 at the moment, what you might call senior clubs, the old, the old traditional league split into um, the four sections. Within that, you have dramatically different revenues, incomes, ambitions, and all the rest of it. Some clubs are quite happy to jog along and, and you know, just entertain their local population, whether it be Brecon or, or Forth or Stenishmuir or whatever. Some like Celtic have ambitions of Champions League football every year. Some like Aberdeen and Dundee United have had great times in the past and wish to be great again. It's unlikely they will in a European setting. So you've got all of these ambitions. Now, the problem for Scottish football is that one size doesn't fit all. It never did, and it certainly doesn't in the modern world. So I think what we need to do is we need to work out what it is we want from the game and where all of that ranks in terms of importance. And increasingly, you have probably seen Gordon Strachan's um, quotes this morning and in his interview from uh, from BBC Scotland the other day where he talks about, you know, 
on the face of it, quite brusque, um, you know, suggestions that a lot of clubs who class themselves as professional, paying 80 quid a week, aren't really professionals. Almost sounds as though you'd be saying to them, get out the road and become what you are, glorified juniors. And there are a lot of people in the game that think like that, I think. There are other people in the game that think every small club has, it, has, its, has its say and have, should have as big a say as everyone else. I'm conflicted with that. I think if we want top-flight football, feeding into our international team, then I think first and foremost, we have to look after the big clubs. Now, I don't think we can any longer run a setup where you have 42 clubs all feeding from the same pot, and in fact, with the pyramid system, probably even more um, into the future. Um, I don't think you can do that and maintain, you know, such a big setup. And increasingly, I think that Strachan, although he was he was pretty brutal, you know, in his method of, you know, addressing the situation, is probably on the right lines. I start to think that what we may be heading to again is some kind of split, where effectively you have what you, you know, what you've got in England at the moment. The Premier the Premier League runs its affairs, and the EFL runs the rest. Now, actually, we've we've not long come out of that, where the SPL and the SFL merged. I'm not sure it's worked. Uh, and I suspect that what we may end up doing is having something like a top league and two regionals below it uh, with playoffs feeding into that big league or a top league of maybe 14 or 16 or two 14s and then regionals below it. I think that will be the direction of travel eventually because the COVID-19 thing, we might come at this tomorrow, we might suddenly find a vaccine or a cure which, which sorts everything immediately. Um, the, the chances of that, you'd have to think, are fairly slim. When you're talking about championship clubs uh, and, and, and certainly leagues, leagues one and two, maybe going into mothballing for a season, you have to ask what's left at the end of that. And, and will the appetite still exist at lower level? Will the appetite still exist at top level to continue in the form that they've had? So I think everything at the moment is up for grabs. Scottish football is great at talking itself to death. But I think at the moment some really serious discussions are needed about what, just what is our game about? And can the one-size-fit-all approach continue? And I'm not sure it can. I think that's a very good argument there that you've laid out. Jim, I think you're, you're spot on in the sense that mothballing football for clubs is very difficult. And and the obvious one is League One. And again, it's not to be elitist here, but if 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 you mothball that for, for a season, it might suit some of the part-time clubs that Gordon Strachan's referring to. But for Partick, Thistle and Falkirk, that could set them back years. Well, it could put them out of business. I mean, you know, let's be absolutely blunt. I know that, I mean, I was talking to a good pal of mine last night who almost bought Dundee United at one stage. What a lucky escape that was for him. Um, and he was saying to me he'd been reading up on the history of um, football during the war years. And, and you know, clubs, uh, you know, he says, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I remember, you know, this because my dad was was based in RAF, mainly in Scotland, but quite often in Liverpool during the war. And we'd go to watch Liverpool or Everton, but they were usually mothballed. So occasionally they'd get games together. And, and if there were a, a squad of players that, that were professional players actually based with the RAF or the, the Army, they'd put together teams and they would play under, you know, whatever moniker. Um, so teams can mothball, but those were highly unusual circumstances. And after the war years, of course, people were desperate to come back and, and watch something. These are different times. There's, I mean, I'm not, I'm not kind of overly fond of this generation. Z. I've used it myself, this generation Z or millennial kind of approach to life. I, I take people as people. But I think if you take football away for a year, lots of people might just get out the habit of going or watching. And more importantly, for, for, bluntly, for the full-time clubs like Thistle, 
uh, and Falkirk and clubs like that who've got good stadiums, lots of money invested, where does it leave them? You know, potentially it could kill them. And, and uh, you know, I mean, no, no, look, no club actually has the right to exist. And I don't want it to sound like some kind of Thatcher right there because I'm anything but, you know, my politics are firmly on the left. But football's not owed a living. Uh, and, and, and clubs have to, you know, clubs have to appeal to their community. Clubs have to show that they're worth something, they're worth following and all the rest of it. But you can only do that if you've actually got a club playing. And if you don't have a club playing, then the prospects are horrendous. And I think that crisis point is being reached here, where Scottish football is going to have to make some really, really serious decisions. I don't think you can throw clubs like Falkirk and Partick Thistle to the wolves. Absolutely. I think you're spot on in the sense that the infrastructure they've got, the history they've got, if they're thrown to the wolves for a year, which could, as you said, potentially put them out of business or, as I say, set them back for many years, I think that that would, wouldn't leave a good taste in the mouth of so many fans of Scottish football. And the next big topic I want to get your opinion on, Jim, is the broadcasting situation in Scotland. We had um, Sky and BT sharing the, the, the rights for several years, that's now changing so that Sky get the broadcasting rights exclusively. There are many Scottish football fans, I'd say a high proportion, well, again, that's judging by social media, so I suppose you can't take everything from that, of course not. But there seems to be a high proportion online that think Sky don't do enough to promote the Scottish game. In your opinion, do you think we're going to be worse off without BT Sport? Well, only time will tell. I mean, I admire what BT Sport have done. I think they were innovative. They were inventive. Um, I think they brought a, a pizzazz, a bit of zip. You know, you, you'd big sooty kind of playing the, the argumentative clown sometimes. And I mean that in the nicest possible sense. You know, he stirred the pot. He, he did what punters would be doing in the pub and on the way to the ground. You'd, uh, Michael Stewart bring the intellectual approach. That, you know, you're a good mix of the boys. The, the, you know, and, and the girls as well. You're a good mix on BT Sport. Um, now, Roger Mitchell made the point on Sunday, and to some extent I agree with him, um, and it's not knocking the guys who, work, who do work for Sky up here, because, you know, Big Charles and, and Luke are good guys. My suspicion is they sometimes get very frustrated at the, you know, at the way Scottish football is treated with news stories and all the rest of it. In terms of the actual coverage, Roger was of the view that Sky have taken a defensive approach to covering Scottish football, that basically it's what can we get away with? We need to cover it, or we think we need to cover it, because we might lose so many subscribers if we don't cover it. So we'll cover it, but we'll do the basic, the minimum. Now, the problem is we're now tied in for five years. So, uh, you know, bluntly, it will be up to them what they do. Undoubtedly, there will be, there'll be something set down in terms of the, uh, you know, number of games and, and, and the coverage and all the rest of it. But whether it has the same zip, the same sense of theatre, the same sense of pizzazz that BT has, well, I think the track record would indicate that it will not. Uh, that that is the worry for me as well, and and the worry if it doesn't have that pizzazz is that people will switch off, and and obviously I know people say that the four Celtic Rangers games per season get the viewing figures. That's all they're really interested in. But I hope Sky look at what BT were able to do and think they were able to interest people in a whole variety of different games. They covered the playoffs very well, and I hope that Sky sort of take a leaf out of their book and consider being more innovative this time because, as you've said there, if it goes back to the same old, same old, if that was for a couple of seasons, fair enough, but the deal's quite a long-term deal, so I think they really need to make sure they get it spot on. Well, I mean, it's, it's in there. I mean, look, they've got all the expertise in the world. That's the first thing. I mean, Sky, Sky are a great broadcaster. They've got, they've got, you know, absolutely tons of expertise. So it's not about the quality. They've got all the quality in the world. Um, it's, about how, it's about how they want to cover the game 
and what in depth, what inside knowledge they have of the game. I think that was the key thing with um, uh, you know with BT. BT had big characters in the game. They understood the Scottish game. I think they understood the Scottish psyche much better than Sky did. I mean, I suspect. I don't know. I hear John Hartson maybe joining. You know, that'd be a good thing. John's a, a great proponent of the Scottish game. And and listen, let, let me say this immediately. Uh, one thing as a journalist, one and and as a fan, because journalists are fans, albeit we don't pay again. I have to say. Um, but I would say this, Callum. We often hear this talk about, you know, we've got to talk the game up. The, the, the role of the journalist is not to talk anything up. The role of the journalist is to try and bring the facts and the truth and then offer an opinion on, 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 on what he or she sees in the game. So that doesn't mean a simple blind acceptance and a blind kind of following, you know, that you must pontificate only about good things and ignore the bad things, because there are lots of bad things about the Scottish game. There's lots of great things as well, are there are in any game. Um, so I kind of hope that Sky bring more pizzazz, more zip, more energy, uh, but also a, a, a bit of kind of serious um, focus to the, the issues surrounding the game and, and deal with it in a serious manner. But it's in the lap of the, well, it's not in the lap of the gods, it's in the lap of those who um, are in the editorial seats at Sky. That's, that's very true, absolutely. And to, to now, to, to move on to your broadcasting career, you've been, you mentioned the fact that you're a journalist, you've been involved in Scottish football and Scottish society, covering various stories for decades. In terms of your journey into broadcasting, Jim, how did that all come about? Well, it was a late entry, and that was the first thing. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't a kind of, you know, one of these journalists that kind of went through uni or went through kind of standard kind of in at 17 or 18 into, a, you know, a newspaper company or broadcasting. I, um, <clears throat> I was like everyone else. I was, I was a football fan. My earliest interests, obviously, were on the terracing, uh, watching football. Um, my kind of foray into journalism came in two ways. Oh, well, I actually came in three ways. One, uh, I'd gone back to university when I was about 28, I think, to do a law degree, uh, by which time I was already doing hospital radio uh, and hospital radio commentaries in Dundee. Uh, so I was covering Dundee and United every, every weekend for hospital radio, doing the commentaries, me and a, a, a sidekick. Um, I also kind of then developed into, it was changing times for, for, for Scottish football. The fanzine movement w w was kind of, you know, was very much being born, um, you know, when Saturday comes and the absolute game and things like that were coming out. And, and, and I wrote, um, I was, my moniker was spy for the final hurdle, TFH, Dundee United fanzine, uh, which we used to produce about every four or five weeks and sell, you know, in the various corners at Tannadice. And at that time, of course, you know, the pressure was on for wee Jim McLean and quite often you'd maybe be writing an article and selling a fanzine. And it was a big seller. I outsold the official programme. It would regularly sell 4,000 copies at a game. Um, you know, quite often you'd be standing flogging that to people who were very, very angry at what they'd read in the previous one or the fanzine stance on McLean or the club or whatever, you know. So my, my, my kind of, my route into the game was, you know, I was off doing this law degree. Um, I was busy doing hospital radio. I was busy um, writing for the fanzine. I, I, I was also kind of busy writing for the, the student newspaper at, Dund at Dundee University, where I'm now the rector of the student newspaper, was Anisach, so often I'd be at Dens, you know, writing. A, funnily enough, I came across one of my old reports on Dundee Celtic, or, oh dear God, the prose was horrendous when I looked back in it, you know, um, more than 30 odd years ago. Um, but, so it was a combination of all these things. I then went off to teach uh, law at Dundee College, and um, I was, I was, quite keen to, I was actually quite keen to do news journalism, if I'm being 
bl- brutally honest, uh, but I fancied sport as well. Uh, and out the blue one day, uh, having had umpteen letters knocked back by BBC News, I got a phone call asking me what I knew about tennis. Uh, and of course, immediately I, I sussed that there was an opportunity here. So I bluffed. I mean, what I knew about tennis, in terms of the rules, you probably could have written the back of my thumb. But I played. I was, you know, I, I did play a fair bit. Um, and they asked me to cover the Scottish Hardcore Tennis Championships at Brotty Ferry, at Fort Hill, the Fort Hill Courts. I did that. And after that, various gigs came my way. Occasionally, I would get a shout for this, that, the next. And I would do everything. I would do a, I would do a gig for the consumer program. This is in between teaching law. Uh, I would do a gig for the consumer program. If the religious program thought for the day, asked me to go and interview a minister or a priest, I would go and do it. I'd do anything that came up. Uh, and my big break really came when St. Johnston were, um, were, were on the march and heading towards their new stadium. Uh, they needed somebody by and large to cover Saints games. I did that. And pretty much contemporaneously with that, um, a few years later, Bobby Seath, who had captained uh, the great Dundee side in 61-62 to the league, uh, uh, league victory and um, the European Cup semi-final. Bobby was retiring. Bobby was hanging up the microphone. And um, the, the Beeb, you know, didn't have a staff report. Well, they had staff reporters in Dundee. They had a couple, but they were news people, so they didn't cover sports. So... That was the break for me in covering Tardis, Dens, and it kind of grew from there. For a lot of years, I mixed and matched the two careers as a law lecturer by day uh, and, uh, you know, and a BBC sports journalist by, by night. Um, I, you know, and the college were very good. I'd get away sometimes. I was away doing the commentary on Celtic Young Boys Burn many, many years ago with Ian Archer, the late Ian Archer, um, as my co-commentator. The, the college let me away to do that. And that's almost 30 years ago. Um, and that was how I broke in. And then eventually um, a job came up. A job came up with BBC, with Sports Sound, um, based in Glasgow. I took it for three months. Um, wasn't overly keen on travelling every day. Tried to pursue it with me in Dundee. Moved back to Dundee and um, did a bit of teaching again. And then the BBC asked me to come back. And I came back and I did the morning bulletins on Good Morning Scotland for about four and a half, five years. And married that with any other work that was going. And then I went on staff uh, for a period of about 15 years before going freelance again a few years back. So it was a long kind of varied career and, and, and quite a convoluted way in. You know, it wasn't the usual way in. Uh, but I think there was actually something to be said for it, to have um, a pretty wide experience. And in fact, bizarrely, as sometimes happens in life, um, you know, for, I mean, there are a lot of very, I mean, one of the things that, you know, that struck me in, in sports journalism, a lot of really well-educated guys in, in sports journalism. You know, they've got degrees of, of, of all sorts. But it was fortunate for me that at the time Bosman and everything was happening, you know, there was a law lecture around the books. And it was my, it was, that was my bag. I was teaching contract law and all the rest of it. So regularly, you could pontificate with some knowledge on sports sound and all the rest of it about what was going on in the game as Bosman turned the game upside down. And, and, and we talked more about the politics of the game game uh, than we did about football you know so it was a long kind of convoluted way in but I wouldn't have had it any other way. You mentioned the fact a few years ago you went back to to freelance how much are you enjoying that now having the freedom to dip your toes into lots of different projects? Well it's fine I mean you know if I'm being brutally honest I think there comes a stage where Day in, day out, after you've done something, you know, for, for 30 odd years, interviewing kind of, you know, same players every day and the same things, it, 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 it loses a bit of the glitz, it loses a bit of the glamour. Now, I wouldn't knock it, it's been a f- fantastic ride, and I hope there's a lot, a, a lot more years to come. But um, particularly when you're a staffer with the BBC, there are certain things you can't do, and there are certain things you want to have, you know, you want to 
speak about it. I mean, I, I, I was quite a political creature. I've been asked in my time to stand for both the SNP and the Labour Party, you know, as a man of the left. Uh, and, um, you know, there were things that I wanted to have me say about, and that became quite awkward as a, um, a, as a BBC staff member. Um, but there were also elements, you know, of, of kind of, you know, almost fatigue in doing certain things. You know, the, the the Dundee situation was always awkward with the BBC. The Dundee office, I, I mean, it's, it's an open secret. I was, I despaired sometimes at the way the BBC treated the Dundee office. For a city of give or take 200,000 people to have, you know, by the, by the time I left, one reporter and me, you could never get a cameraman, you could never get a camera crew. And it became just, you know, it became absolutely wearing trying to cover, cover stories up here when you could never get a camera crew. Um, a, a, a horrible wee studio that was kind of like stuck there. I actually had better studios in my hospital radio days. So there's a combination of things. I think sometimes it's just time to move on and do things. Now, I mean, I, I, um, I still do stuff for BBC. On, well, I still did do stuff for BBC on a Saturday on Sports Sound, although I, my suspicion is in the future uh, with budget cuts and all the rest of that will probably be curtailed or, or, or end completely. Um, but I, I've had a pretty good run, put it that way. One of the things that was a big moment for you was, you've obviously stood up for what you believe in and the truth over the years. The sort of 2012 situation, I don't want to to bore you and be going into the detail of it all over again, but that situation was massive in Scottish football. You were one of the forthright voices in that. Was that ever quite scary at the time with threats that you were getting or... Uh, threats of violence, etc., because it was quite a Scottish football is very tribal, but especially at that time, it, it went into overdrive. Yes, I mean, it, it was, um, well, it lasted for a good wee while. I mean, you know, it, it started with obviously the Rangers kind of uh, being liquidated. I mean, you know, the, the history of the thing was, I think, as I recall, on a Tuesday, I was uh, leaving a camp. I was, I was working on Sports Sound all that week. On the Thursday night, I was to be presenting from Glasgow. And my guests were Ewan Murray and Billy, Billy Dodds. Uh, Ewan Murray, freelance writer, writes for The Guardian. Edinburgh based. Good lad, you and have a pint with him occasionally. Uh, and Dodgy was on, who I knew very well, obviously. And I think preceding that, on the Tuesday, I think I'd, had a call, I'd, I'd actually had a call from Jim Trainer letting me know that John McClellan was coming back to Ibrox as a chairman. So it was quite a nice wee scoop um, coming back. But it was, you know, John McClellan, I think, had been there when the club had gotten, gotten themselves into uh, trouble and going into liquidation and all the rest of it. So we had, if you want, on a Tuesday, I broke the story on the Tuesday night and then the Wednesday night with a kick of the ball, as they say, with the story. It was a good story. And on the Thursday night, I uttered the words um, in a convoluted sentence, I have to say. Basically, what I was trying to say was, look, a lot of people are saying, this is not the same club. This is the club that died, which, which, as you will know, most people who were not Rangers fans were saying, the club were liquidated, they're dead. Now, as a law lecturer, I had a very firm view on that. Liquidation means death. I knew that Rangers fans in their heart and their guts and their soul think and still think it's the same club. That's fine. I haven't got a problem with that. But I uttered the words, you know, uh, John McClellan is coming back. Some say he's coming back to a club that died. And, and, uh, and the balloon went up. The balloon went up for that, you know, basically that kind of solitary sentence, the balloon went up and I had all sorts of threats. I, you know, you know I, I still keep all the screenshots because it may come back to haunt some people. But, I, you know, I had all sorts of threats. Uh, I was out for a walk one day, my wife and a fella actually bizarrely quite close by. And Dundee's not a town where there's many Rangers fans, but a uh, very well-dressed fella um, you know, issued some, uh, uh, you know, strong words to me. Um, and I'm, I'm, 
I offered him the old traditional Dundee, would you like to take your jacket off, mate? And he, he wasn't for that. So, uh, but I was under orders to report all that sort of stuff. So they reported it to the police and, uh, and the threats came pouring in. I had a meeting with BBC security people. Uh, I knew it was serious when they offered me a mirror to check under my car, you know. Uh, I mean, it was ludicrous. It was utterly ludicrous, you know. And it went on for a good, a good long time. Uh, I, I tell you this, I found out who my friends were. Let's put it that way. Um, I, I found that some people I thought who, who I thought were friends maybe weren't as friendly as I thought, and, and I got backing from some very strange places, you know. Um, but it was it was a pretty uh, pretty miserable period because people do forget that you know as a journalist you take things on. That's fair enough. That's not a problem. We also have a family. You have a wife and kids as well, you know, and uh, and you've got to be careful of the impact on them. But the, the story went on, and I think I, I firmly recall one night being on um, on Newsnight with Gordon Brewer, and I think this is when I really realized that things were changing in the Scottish game. My suspicion, and I've said this publicly, my suspicion is at one time, Scottish football, and it, 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 this ties in with the, the changing nature of Scottish football, you know, old, old Presbyterian Scotland, if you want, would have, would have bowed the knee to Rangers, would have doffed the cap to Rangers. Rangers would not have gone down and into the, the you know, the bottom division. They would have, they, they'd have been parachuted right back into the top league. But it had changed. And I think many journalists, particularly in the West, had, you know, I suspect they didn't speak to, you know, the forfers or the break-ins or the smaller clubs and, and lots of the other clubs because that wasn't their game. I did. And I knew what was going on and I knew the strength of feeling. And the more I spoke to people, the more I knew that Rangers weren't going to be invited back into the top league. And I said that one night on Newsnight, and I think it drew guffaws from some of the other guests. Um, but I was pretty sure of, of, of my fact, and, and so it proved. Um, I can firmly recall that evening... Gordon Brewer, who's a fine journalist, introducing me as that strangest of things, a football pundit who doesn't come from Glasgow, which I thought showed it. You know, where people in, in the East will talk about West Coast bias. There's no such a thing as West Coast bias. But there is Glasgow bias, and there's West End bias, you know, that old kind of, that, that, that wee kind of West End bubble that a lot of journalists in, 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 in Glasgow and some of the BBC live in and occupy. And I didn't occupy that. I had a much broader view of the world. And as it turned out, uh, a much more correct view of what was going to happen. So it was a very interesting period. Um, it still kicks on. I mean, I still got a fair bit of grief. I've got some uh, Rangers fans that I have who follow me on Twitter, and they're great lads, and you can have a great discussion with them and all the rest of it. But, but I've got a hell of a lot of them blocked as well, I have to say, because, the, the, you know, when it comes to football, you mentioned earlier on, we've got tribalism, and that tribalism shines through, and it can be pretty brutal at times. It can be pretty brutal, and... On a light-hearted note, someone who likes to wind you up and you like to wind him up, Stuart Cosgrove, on off the ball, you get your weekly mention. <laughs> Describe your relationship, Stuart. He's never forgiven me for always being better dressed than him as a, as a teenager. I mean, I'll tell you how I know Cos. Um, I mean, he's obviously he's substantially older than me, obviously, you know, but... Uh, yeah, um, my relationship with Cos goes uh, way back to our teen years, uh, Callum. Um, basically, as a young Dundee United fan in my teens, I, I got to know Stuart. They're going, going to see United at the, you know, at the old uh, Murchin Park or Saints coming here. I, I, and the reason I got to know him was that in those days, in fact, I think even for the first couple of weeks himself, um, quite a lot of guys, I mean, I went to the old academy system when you passed the old qualifying exam, the old 11 plus exam. Uh, now, the, the school in Dundee, the academy in Dundee, um, of the three Catholic secondaries, the academy in Dundee was a school called Lawside. And we drew from, from everywhere, all over Dundee, 
uh, from Perth, from Forfa, from, you know, from parts of Fife, uh, Arbroath and everything. You know, uh, people who passed that exam who were of the Catholic faith would come to Lawside Academy. And, and Stuart's great mate to this day, or one of his great mates to this day, is a guy called Mike Mason. And Mike and I were great pals all the way through Lawside. And that was how I got to know Stuart over a, a period of time. And I have to say, on a couple of occasions, he saved me from a, he saved me from kind of having my features rearranged in Perth on a couple of occasions. So we, we've known each other a long, long time. He, he is, um, he's a great guy. He, he's got a great brain. He's got a great passion for Scottish football. He's got a great love for the city of Dundee. You know, I mean, he really loves Dundee with a deep passion. You know. <laughs> As, as you will know, the way we wind each other up and Twitter. But no, he's, Stuart's a great fella. Uh, and he's, um, he's, he's one of Scottish football's uh, enduring, enduring stars. Absolutely. And in terms of yourself, you were at the BBC, as you talked about, as a staffer for so many years. In terms of off the ball, they've been on now for, for 25 years. I mean, how, how did, did you ever foresee something in Scottish football that could last that long? Oh, no, I mean, funnily enough, I did. Um, I, went, I was through at the National, uh, National Library of Scotland last year doing some filming with a, a couple of guys uh, um, at the Bee Bondis. They were doing the documentary, which you may, you may have seen on, on Off the Ball. Yeah. Um, and when it started, of course, I mean, it was completely unusual. It was completely different. In fact, bizarrely, uh, and I'd almost forgotten this, and I, I had to remind the guys this, I was actually... I did one of the first pilots for Off the Ball, but at that time, it wasn't necessarily going to be called Off the Ball, um, and it was going to be a television uh, pilot. Uh, it was going to be a television program, and I did it along with Ian Rankin, who, uh, the, the, the great Rebus uh, uh, writer, uh, and it was Sanjeev Kohli at the time. Um, um, and we, 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 you know, it would never have worked on telly. I don't think, you know, it, well, it couldn't have worked on telly. I mean, you think it's some of the kind of, some of the kind of, the, the coarse language that's used and all that. In those, those days, it would never have worked. So it was always going to be a radio thing. Um, but I never for a moment thought it would have a shelf life of 25 years. I mean, it, it has been quite incredible, but it tapped, tapped into the kind of, you know, I tapped into the Zeke guys to Scottish football. I tapped right into the, the punter, the fan mentality in the pubs and the clubs and, you know, and the buses and all the rest. It just tapped in because you two guys that weren't uh, Celtic or Rangers fans, you know, Tom was a, a mad Motherwell fan and Stuart was a, a mad Sainty. And I think that that, that kind of, that, that changed. Of course, they, they weren't the originals, you know, but I mean, very quickly became the originals. Um, and it's just had a, it's had a magnificent shelf life. And I suspect it's got a long way to, to go yet. I mean, I've appeared in it umpteen times I've been hypnotized it I've played the harmonic on it I've played the spoons on it I've presented it you know um it's 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 a great it's a great program but but those two are the kind of they're the centrifugal force of it and it's been a it's been uh you know a, a magnificent program in Scottish football I think it's got a fair bit of life left in it yeah absolutely and to, to make to make the interview a bit personal now Jim see Jim Spence the footballer what were you like where did you play did you ever have a chance of making it magnificent I was a, I was a flying ginger-headed winger. Um, <laughs> uh, my, my claim to fame is that, you know, <clears throat> at St. Columbus Primary, it was me and a guy called Jackie Hood. Jackie and I were regularly on the bench uh, when, when the team played. Uh, we, we always reckoned it was because we didn't go to Mass on Sunday. You know, which, uh, it, it was, we, we, you know I, I kind of I played with, I, listen, I could beat anybody with a ball. 
problem is I couldn't pass the ball. I never understood the concept of passing. No, I was a decent juvenile player. I used to play in what they called the old juvenile league in Dundee, which is in between amateurs and the juniors. It was a league that you had to you just stop it once you were 27 for some bizarre reason and either go amateur or away at the juniors or something like that. So, I mean, I, I played amateur and juvenile pretty much all my days. Uh, could I have made it? I, I, I doubt it very much. I had, so, I had some fairly intricate skills on a ball, uh, but um, I think my old asthma did me in, you know? <laughs> <laughs> in terms of playing the game, um, everyone always says that works in the sort of football media that if you can't play the game, the second best thing is to work covering the game. And for yourself, you're a massive... Dundee United fan, in terms of Dundee United, describe your love of the club, your first heroes, and crucially, your first day out at Tannadice. Well, it's, you know, I mean, here's a strange thing. I mean, I often think of this with you know, football, you support your local team, do this on the next. I, I could have so easily been a Celtic supporter. There's a big Celtic support in Dundee. There's a big, you know, Glasgow and Dundee and the West. The demographics of the, the, the Tories are, are quite similar. Irish immigration and all the rest of it. My dad, I mean, you know, my, my dad was a later dad with me. He, he wasn't with the, other, the others. But my two sisters are 10, 14, and my brother is 13 years older than me. So I, I was kind of, uh, I was almost, a, as my old man used to claim, a, the second immaculate conception. By the time I was kind of eight, nine, ten, my old man had stopped going to football. So who takes you to the football? Well, my brother did. Uh, my brother Robert, who's 13 years my senior. Now, Robert was a big Celtic fan. He, he travelled on the buses from the Dundee Hilltown Club. So quite often as a kid, I'd get taken to see Celtic. Uh, quite often, I'd be going to see Dundee Downfield Juniors or Dundee St. Joseph's Juniors, both played in the scheme that I was I was brought up in. Or I'd be away trying to sneak into dens uh, under the turnstiles or sneaking into Tannadice or whatever, you know, on, on my own with some of my mates. Um, so I kind of graduated towards uh, United um, probably when I was about 12. So it wasn't kind of like six, seven, I was mad about you. I mean, like a lot of boys of my age, I was captivated by Celtic winning the European Cup in 67. And not just Celtic fans, whatever everyone was. You know, I, I loved Jimmy Johnston, you know. Um, but by kind of age of 12, I was gravitating towards United. But bizarrely, I mean, of all the, of all the memories I've got of United, some of the great games, the winning cups and all the rest of it, the one that really stands, in my, uh, stands out in my mind was one bitterly cold uh, game at in the League Cup, and I think it—I think it was a League Cup, but I definitely know it was at Cowden Beath in the days when Dundee United were lucky they took two busloads of supporters, and it was so cold we were foraging for wood on that massive old terracing and trying to light a bonfire to keep warm. That's—that's that's one of the memories that I've got of watching United in the days when there was a guy, and I try to remember this lad's name, but we called him Hooky because he had um. Not very politically correct now, but he had a hook for a hand, you know, uh, and hooky around the buses from from Tannadice. And I say buses, you know, it, it, it scarcely made plural. And I mean, I think the very first final I ever went to see United in '74 when they lost three 0 to Celtic. Um, I think United had about four thousand fans with them, maybe five thousand. You know, I mean, they just, you know, fast forward all the years years later, and they beat Ross County in front of twenty eight thousand travelling support. You know, so United um, kind of grew and grew and grew as a club, you know. But I mean, my, my early introduction, I could have gone anywhere. I could, I could have been a Dundee fan, I could have been a United fan, could have stuck with the juniors, could have been watching Celtic, you know. But there was always something about United. I mean, bear in mind, they were to a great extent, even when I was starting to kind of, you know, follow them first. They were, they were very much the second club in the city. Dundee were very much the establishment club, the big club. Dundee in the 40s had played to average crowds of 25,000 and all the rest of it. But what there was in Dundee, and my father was part of it, and most of my mates' dads were part of it as well, there was a crossover tradition. 
because United for so many years had been basically a, a, an old kind of second division side, a B division side if you want, and Dundee had been the top dogs, and, and football was kind of like the equivalent of kind of 10 pence to get into now. Um, people went weak about. Many people. My dad went weak about. He used to say to me, go to Dens for a bit of quality. Tanadice for blood and snotters, as he used to say. And, and there was a whole generation grew up like that. So um, to some extent, although, you know, although my, my leanings are well known, I would always want to see my, my, my oldest boy, he's 28 now, went right through the, the Dundee ranks. I think they signed him in primary seven. He went right through. He was Barry Smith's under-19s keeper for for two seasons as a 16-year-old right through, you know. So, I mean, I, you know, I would always want the two Dundee clubs to do well. You know, I'm not one of these Arabs that hates Dundee. I would always want to see Dundee doing well also. I want to talk to you about the late 80s and uh, Jim McLean. Everyone talks about the, the Barcelona games, home and away. Just what was it like supporting United at Jim McLean's peak? Um, well, it was fascinating at his peak because, <clears throat> you know, what he did will never be done again, um, for one thing. Um, him and Alex Ferguson, I, I think, did a couple of things. The one that, they, they broke the mould for a period of, of, of Celtic Rangers, the old firm as it was uh, then, you know, to become the new firm. They, they, they made an almighty challenge over a great period of, you know, of years to... Um, to the Glasgow hegemony. I mean, bear in mind that, you know, Celtic Rangers between them have won the top title every kind of year, barring 18 years. And one of those is Rangers, the Barton Shearing. So, you know, the history of Scottish football over 140 odd years has only seen the title going to 18 different clubs outside of Celtic and Rangers. So for United and Aberdeen to break that was, was incredible. McLean, um, in many respects, he's misunderstood. He could be a very angry man, and he often was. He'd be a very generous man. Sometimes he was to me. Um, he was, though, mainly um, when he wasn't so angry, and he did put a lot of players out of the game and all the rest of it. What he did have, he, he was well ahead of his time. He was well ahead of the game. I mean, Gordon Wallace said, you know, on the, on the I think it was the, the, the documentary when United had gone to the, the, the final of the UEFA Cup. He said that, you know, we Jim was using tactics that people thought were innovational in 2010. McLean had been using high press or, you know, counter-attacking methods, um, you know, 40 years ago. I mean, he, he had, you know, he was heavily involved in what would now be known as sports science, dietary issues, rest issues. Um, he regularly had uh, Harry Bennett in to see him, who was Liz Lynch, as she was then, Liz McCoggan's coach for, for specialist athletics advice. He had Stuart Hogg, who was an international class sprint coach on, on, on the bench with him. Stuart's actually still working, I think, at the age of 80 with Jim McAnally up at Peterhead, and that link would have been made in, 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 in the McLean days. Um, I, I think he once stopped short when he was given the advice by Harry Bennett, the athletics coach, that maybe it would, it would be handy to bring a ballet coach in to help his, his goalkeepers. That was a bridge too far, I think, for Jim, but thinking it, you know, when we think how powerful and strong the great core strength Mali guys have. So Jim was actually miles ahead of his time, not just as a tactician, the coach. He, he knew the game better than anyone else. Magnificent coach, magnificent tactician. Man management let him down often. Um, I, I think that was, that was a big issue. And I think sometimes he was too negative. Um, one former top flight referee said to me, he thought United, man for man, were a better side than Aberdeen, but Fergie psychologically was a, was a braver and a stronger manager. And I think there's much truth in that. In terms of McLean, you talked to the fact he could, he could be angry, but there's far more to his career than just that. But the obvious question I've got to ask, were you ever on the end of that hairdryer treatment? 
well, a couple of a couple of times. My, my normal routine was go cover the game. Um, you know, I, I, I go to the pub for a few pints with my mates. Um, and, and a couple of times, my wife got the call on a Saturday night. Where is that wee? <laughs> and she had to say, well, he's no in, you know. Um, so, so a couple of times, maybe she was on the end of it, you know. Um, he, I mean, he was <laughs> he, he did not suffer fools gladly. I mean, we jump could, you know, the hair dryer treatment could be pretty brutal. I remember, I remember one... Uh, you know, one day my, uh, my uh, pal of mine, John Gibson, who I think I said earlier on, he almost bought Dundee United. John, uh, John was the guy who <laughs> introduced me to Vladimir Romanov. He told me that there was a, there was a Russian guy opening out of Ukraine who was thinking of buying Dundee United. And at first, I thought I thought he was havering, you know, and it was it was Romanov who initially his first introduction to Scottish football was he met with Eddie Thompson a couple of times. The two of them didn't get on, so the deal never went any further. He apparently had plans to buy United and Dundee and merge the two of them. That would have gone down a storm. But John had given me a story years and years earlier. He's a well-connected guy. Um, he'd given me a story years and years earlier about two Irish guys um, who wanted to buy a share, a small share in Dundee United. One was a, a commercial manager at a club in Ireland. One had actually trained as a, as a surgeon uh, at Nine Wells Hospital in Dundee, but they were back in, in, in Dublin. So I actually had the letter, and the, the letter rebuffing it from Wee Jim. I thought it's a great story, you know. So we have a, a hookup on Sports Sound where, you know, uh, Richard would go around and say, right, check what have you got, so-and-so, what have you got, Spencey, what have you got, you know. I thought, fantastic. That's the, top, that's the top story. We're going with that at the top. So we come on, you get the Sports Sound theme tune, the sting comes in, <clears throat> bang, they come to me immediately. And I give it the big licks about, you know, possible investment into Canada. He's Dundee United, who started as Dundee Hibernian, may have an Irish link, blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, some this big build-up. And Richard says to me, and what's the Dundee United chairman saying about this? And I said, I'm, well, I'll tell you in a moment, Richard, because I can hear him heading towards me. And in the back, I could hear him shouting, Spencey, Spencey, how you, ya wee? And this was, <laughs> he'd been listening to him, as he did, he'd been listening to his transistor in, in, his, in his wee office, and he came storming along towards me. Of course, I should have put the headphones on him and, and, and then presented him with a letter. I didn't. I showed him a letter before I went on. And he, he then refused to go in the programme, you know, and accused me of, I thought, what is it, running with the, running with the hares and hunting with the hounds or something like that, you know, basically it meant you're a two-faced git, you know, um, but it was true, they, they, I mean, I had the letter from the guys to him and the letter back from him to them uh, saying, no thanks, you know, no, no thanks to your offer of investment, because, he, you know, he guarded Dundee United very jealously, I mean, he, he, I mean that was the thing with Jimmy, he pretty much ran Dundee United, we heard all the tales over the years about, could have gone to Rangers, could have gone here, could have gone there, but he had incredible incredible uh, autonomy at United. I mean, he pretty much ran the whole show, um, which eventually I think brought him down. You know, as the game changed um, with Bosman and all the rest of it, clubs like Dundee United just couldn't compete in the firmament that they'd previously been in. Just, it just couldn't happen anymore. And I think the pressures of that eventually got to him. He got out, you know, he probably got out too late, in fact, you know. Um, but he was he was a fascinating character. Um, and so, yes, I was on the end of, of the hairdryer treatment. He was, a, he was a strange man. I was sitting, Raymond McKinnon, uh, who went on to manage United, of course, and my uh, m my brother was was great pals with, with uh, Raymond's uh, late father, Raymond Senior, um, who actually taught beside me at one stage in Dundee College. And uh, I was sitting, I'd been invited to a kickboxing dinner, you know, do a bit of work at kickboxing dinner, and then we were sitting down and I was seated next to Jim. And he turned to me at the blue and he said, uh, hey, and I went, yeah? And he went, uh, I just wanted to say, she's uh I've always respected you as a journalist. And I was waiting on the point. I was waiting on the punch. He was waiting on the punchline. And it never came. So I, I can only assume he meant it. You know, he, he was a he was a strange man. 
he was a strange man. You've got to watch that you don't let the passage of years, and he's not a well man now, of course, um, but you've got to watch you don't let the passage of years um, lull you into false security because he could be a, he could be a nasty a nasty person at times. You know, I mean, as many a player will testify, there's a lot of the guys to this day, you know, that, that will speak eloquently about what he did for them as players, but as men, they, they as men they have a completely different kind of view of him. But if you're taking him solely in terms of the football that he provided, he, he took a he took a team that at one time, you know, historically had actually been the number two in their own city to undreamt of heights. 13, 14 years constantly in Europe, beating Borussia Mönchengladbach, beating Barcelona, be, you know, be, beating the best that Europe could offer. That's it. And that's, as you said earlier on, that probably won't be done again because of the nature of the finances involved in football now. And some quite sad about that, but also means with hindsight, you can look back and you can cherish those memories even more. Other than the McLean era, which was, as we say, as you said there rightly, was over a decade of, of, of sheer highs. What have been your other favourite memories following United through the years? Well, I was, um, you know, in the, in the good old days when BBC Scotland Sport actually had some money to spend, we used to be quite innovative. And, and when they went to the, um, the final, when United made the final in 1994, Scottish Cup final, um, of course, uh, the legendary Ivan Golak was the manager. And we hit upon the idea of trying to put a journalist on for live broadcasts on each of the team buses, the Rangers bus and the, and, and the United bus from their hotels on, 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 the, on the road to Hamden. And we would do live inserts uh, into the programme, you know, interviews with the players and all the rest of it. Rangers weren't for it. Rangers weren't having it. Ivan loved it. He thought it was fantastic. What a great idea. So I, I, I picked up the bus at the, it was one of the hotels in East Kilbride, as I recall. I can't remember the name, but I picked the, the bus up at the East Kilbride. I've got all my radio pack on all the gear and all the rest of it. Uh, and you're interviewing Bruce there and Billy McKinley, who wasn't even playing that day, you know. Uh, <clears throat> and Golak was in magnificent form. He was in wonderful form. I was the pitch side reporter for radio that day. He's eleven. Was the the, the television uh, reporter pitch side. So here, I, you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a born and bred Dundonian. I'm on the Dundee United team bus on the route to Hamden the cup final, and working pitch side, and, and they win the cup. And you know, I've got a couple of memories. Jimmy McInally at the end ran over, gave me a big hug and a kiss in the cheek, and I said. No tongue in the mouth, Jimmy. You know, we're having a laugh, you know. Uh, and, and, and Golak <laughs> came across and interviewed Golak. And, and I said to him, what message do you have? I said, you were talking last night about having your Rolling Stones records on, Ivan. You're a big Stones fan. You were relaxed and listening to the Stones last night. What message do you have? He said, the message I have now for Rangers and for Walter Smith is, it's all over now. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> yeah. It, it was, but Golak was like that. I mean, Golak and, Golak and Jim had a love-hate relationship. You know, they really did. Actually, bizarrely, here, here's a memory which sometimes kind of, you know, amuses. Um, <clears throat> right at the end of it, um, I got outside the ground and I went to I went to interview, uh, you know, various people outside. And I saw Jim taking his seat on the bus, and he was sitting right at the front, the high steps. And I went across to interview him. And I shouted through, "I'm going to interview with Jim." And as I got there, I, I went to stick the mic out. The microphone must the, the batteries had gone dead just as I went to stick him in front of wee Mike and uh, in, in, in front of wee Jim, which is a stroke a lot because he told me to f off, <laughs> which would have gone at live on air, you know. So. <laughs> Um, so Ivan won the cup and then the next day I went and I presented, I've done it twice, I presented um, 
uh, Ivan Golak and Jim McLean. And it was it was brilliant with the Scottish Cup pulling the two of them out together. <laughs> it was almost it was almost like a rictus smile with wee Jim as he looked at Ivan. Ivan's kind of beaming, and there's twenty five thousand you know Arabs here in the city square, and I come out and introduce you know fellow Arabs in the square erupts, and my mum and my sister and the, uh, you know my wee boy at that time, his son who's only about thirty months, so they're, they're down the front, you know, and it's hoaching, it's hoaching away up Reform Street into distance, just a sea of tangerine. You bring all the boys out, you interview them on the balcony with the Lord Provost and all the rest of it. <clears throat> and that was great. That's, that's a fantastic memory. I did it again when they won the... Um in 2010, I was on the I was on the bus uh, on the, the the open top bus through the city that day. And this, you know, again on the balcony to th thousands thronging in the city square, away up to Tannadice for uh, interviewing people and all the rest. So you know, if, you, if you're a kind of local journalist, but you've got an, you also, I mean, although I was local, I had a national beat as well. The people were great. The people let me cover anything, you know. So th th those were those were great memories, you know. And so both as a journalist, you've seen some fabulous nights, uh, and as a fan as well. And of course, you've seen some lows as well. You know the the relegations um, as well. Um, we we Jim's way going. The way he you know the way he had to stand down as chairman, stuff like that. The incident with with my colleague John Barnes, who's a great guy. You know stuff like that. Um, bizarrely, I was almost at Tannadice that day, but the BBC decided in their wisdom to send me to Petodre to cover Claudia Canigia's debut for Dundee. So otherwise, it might have been me that got chinned that day. You know. <laughs> Well, as you say, that would have been an in, even even more interesting story as well. But as you say, sadly, it was for him, it was Barnsley. Um, in terms of the relegations, you've talked about the lows there as well as the highs. The club were in the championship for a few years too many, mm -hmm. as, as most United fans would say. But last summer, they invested in Lauren Shankland. He's, he's repaid that investment and then some. Scored lots of goals, made his Scotland debut. The club are now back in the top flight. Do you think there's any chance you can keep Shanklin? Well, you know, we go back right to the start of the podcast. I mean, this all depends now on what happens financially with the game. I mean, you know, none of us know. I mean, none of us know how the finances of the game are going to be affected. I mean, Shanklin has been an absolute star for United. It's been, it was an inspired signing between um, Tony Asgard, the sporting director, and, and, and Robbie Nielsen too bring him in. He's on very big money, we know that, and a hefty signing on football accounts as well. But he has delivered spectacularly, and, and he's a real team player. You know, he, he's not one of these kind of, <clears throat> he's not a big-time Charlie, to, you know, to use that expression. He's a real team player, he's a grafter, he works for the team, he seems really settled, he seems really happy. Um, I take him at his word, I don't think he's in any great hurry to leave. My thoughts, if I'm being blunt, uh, my thoughts are that everything, Everything else being equal, Ceteris Paribus, as economists are fond of saying, everything else being equal, I would have expected somebody to come in with a very decent bid from the championship in England for, for, for Shanklin, a million and a half, two million quid. And, 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 and United would have found that difficult to resist. I don't think that's going to happen. There's an implosion happening in England. I mean, I'm hearing about possibilities of the championship in England actually bringing in a salary cap. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm hearing the possibilities of a, a salary cap being brought in in the championship in England, which will be absolutely brutal, which will you know, bring wages down by a, an enormous extent. So, you know, it, it may well be that, that players that might have left Scotland to go there no longer have that, um, that opportunity, you know. So I, I, I think for the foreseeable, it, it looks as though Lauren Shankland will be at Tannadice. Well, as you say, it's something that, the current unprecedented situation. Um, it's not anything that any of us wanted to happen, but 
it may change the state of playing the game, as we talked about earlier, financially, which may result in a player like Shanklin being able to stay at United for another season, maybe a couple of seasons, which can only be a benefit for the club. In terms of returning to the top flight, we talked at the start of the show, we don't know what state the top flight's going to be in, whether it's a status quo of 12 or whether it's going to be extended. Are you confident that United will be able to establish themselves again as a top flight club? Well, same problem again. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I, I think that given the money that Mark Ogren, the American owner, has put in, and, and he has been terrific, he's, he's pumped about seven million quid, maybe more, maybe eight million in between buying the ground back and, 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 and buying the, the tra- you know, the, what, what we call the Gussie Park, which is the kind of, <clears throat> the, the training surface just across the road from Tannery, so United own all that area. Um, between buying all that back and investment, players' wages, he's put a fortune in to the club. But, we know, you know, the, I think the big problem in football at the minute is all of these guys that buy into football for the love and the passion of it, <clears throat> excuse me, all of these guys that buy into football for the love and the passion of it, they do that because their core businesses are supporting it. And we don't know how his core business has been affected. Hopefully it's not been too badly affected, in which case he will be able to invest. But I mean, I'm, I'm hearing tales right at this moment that, that, that Robbie will be lucky if he can sign one player next, for next season, the way things are at the moment. Now, we don't know whether that's true or not. And I think he probably himself, most United fans, would have expected that to strengthen that squad, you'd have been looking at five or six players right through from defence to midfield, to up front as well. So I think these are really unique, unparalleled times. Um, I would have expected United and, and, and Ogren to splash out on half a dozen players. Um, as it is, Dundee United might end up with none. The only, th- the only thing is everything is relative. If Dundee United are in this position, I suspect everyone else will be in the same position. So everyone will be uh, battling along with the squads that they've got. Now, is, is the, the current United squad good enough to be a top six squad in the Premier in the Premiership? I would say no. Um, I'd have said with investment, I would have expected United to make a serious tilt for top six. As it is, if, if everything stays the same throughout the game, uh, and depending on the size of the league as well, that's the other thing. We might end up, and Budgets proposal for 14, we might go for 16 to include clubs like Dundee. Um, then... I, I, I think they would probably be safe. Um, but if we take it as it is at the moment, if we're sticking with the number of clubs we've got at the moment, uh, and no, you know, if the United squad wasn't being strengthened, I would think they'd be kind of, they'd be fighting just to stay stay in the league, I think, with the current squad. Well, as you say, it's, it's interesting how this is going to affect so many businesses and football isn't exempt from that, as you've said, where... You'd maybe have been talking about five or six, but it might only be one now. But it's going to be interesting to see going forward how the game bounces back, um, really across the board in Scotland and in a broader sense across Europe, because as we know, these are unprecedented times. And the last thing I want to talk to you about, the last main question I've got for you, Jim, before a round of quickfire is becoming the rector of Dundee University. I mean, how did that come about and how proud are you to to have that honour because being a man who comes from Dundee, it must be incredible, not only for you, but for your family as well. Well, um, it, it came about, I, I believe, through a mutual acquaintance, yes? Uh, yes. <laughs> a, 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 man, a man that you know, uh, Sean Paul, down in the uh, deepest, darkest, green, he is a green boy, isn't he? The goalkeeper, he, who was the this student president, who approached me and asked me if I would be interested as a former graduate of, of the uni and standing as student president. And to be honest with you, I have to say, I assumed that, 
you know, they probably got half a dozen people standing against me. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. You know, I'll do it. N never. Uh, and this is no sign of false modesty. Never thinking that I'd win it. It was even worse than that. It was on a post. Nobody stood against me. So <laughs> he phoned me up to give me the good news. He said, do you want the good news or the bad news? The good news is that no one stood against you. The bad news is you're now the rector. You know, so that, that was how it came about. I said, you know what? It's, it's been great. And I thank him for, uh, for, for nominating me in the first place because it's old uni. I'm a Dundee boy. Um, uh, the, the university, both universities in Dundee, Aberty as well, but Dundee University is the kind of the, the oldest of the two. It's enormously important to the city. It does incredible work all over, all over the world in so many different fields. Um, and, you know, one thing I would like to do is, is have an even closer relationship with the two clubs, two professional clubs, Dundee and Dundee United. But it's, it's, it's a great honour, you know, and, and the family. I mean, my, my two sisters, my brother, my, my wife, every, every, everybody's kind of, you know, overwhelmed. Like, you know, here's a bizarre thing. Um, for all the years I worked with the BBC, you're on the telly, you're on the radio and all the rest, and lots of people know you and they hear you and you write a column for the local paper. <laughs> that was the one thing that more than anything else, People, you know, old women that you'd, you'd never met in your puff before stop you in the street and say, oh, that's bra laddie. You know, that, that's a great thing you've done, you know. <laughs> it, it was great. People stop you. And I use the bus a lot. I like, I like to use the, the peasant wagon, as my boys call it. I like to use the bus a lot, you know. If I'm going into town to do a podcast at DC Thompson's or something, I'm just going in to maybe interview somebody. I like to use the bus. It saves me to take the car. And you meet people, and it's, it's all they want to talk about, you know. I, th I think some people get confused. I think some people think that I'm actually the principal, you know, <laughs> as opposed to an honorary job. Somebody, somebody said to my wife recently on the bus, well, your man will be rolling in it now, eh? And, and my wife had to say, well, actually, it's an honorary position. It doesn't pay any money. And she said, well, he's off his head, as they say in Dundee, you know. Um, so, it's, no, it's, it's a great thing. It's, it's fantastic. I've got another two years to go, although I have to say, what an introduction it's been. I mean, I was only in about a month when the principal resigned. Uh, then the, the lecturers throughout the country were on strike. And now we've got this hellish COVID-19 and, and students are scattered to the four winds again, you know. I'm having to learn virtually online and all the rest of it. So, it, it have, it have, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of levity in it, but there's been a lot of seriousness in, in, in it as well. I mean, it has been a, an absolutely bizarre first uh, first year. But it was great. It was, very, you know, it was fantastic to be up there on the stage. And one, one of my future, uh, my youngest, my two boys are getting married, one next year and, and the oldest one, uh, the, the oldest one next year and the, the other one the year after. And uh, the youngest one, his... Um, his fiancée, she was graduating, so I was, you know, I was able to give her a wee hug on the stage, you know, uh, as I was sitting in the care hall with 3,000 students in front of me, kind of, you know, um, both graduating and the new ones. It was, it's fantastic. It's a great honour, you know. Absolutely. And, and, and as I say, when, when Sean told me that um, you, you'd got it, I was delighted because, as I say, having followed your career in the BBC and, and being a passionate football fan myself, I was absolutely delighted because when you're from the local area, it's good to see that, you get the opportunity to, to now serve your local area in a in a purposeful role. And the first quick fire question I've got for you, Jim: best players you've watched throughout your time covering Scottish football. How many do you want? As many as you wish. <clears throat> David Neary, going going back in the midst of time, Jimmy Johnson, Brian Loudrop, David Neary, um, a wee guy called Graham Payne. Who, who actually had a wee spell done at Morton in your night of the woods, who was a wonderful football player, played almost 300 times for United. Wee Jim eventually thought he couldn't handle soft ground, hard ground, whatever. But individually, I think one of the most talented football players I ever saw in my life. And of course, the majestic Willie Miller, who I've worked with a lot on the BBC, 
magnificent player. And the last player that my old man, my late dad, thought was a truly great Scottish player, hard as nails, they put it. So th- those are just some, but I've seen so many. And of course, um, Larson. Larson was magnificent. What, what would you say is one of your, the favourite grounds to go to to cover football in Scotland when, when, when you're covering games? I think Tynecastle takes some beating. Tynecastle's fabulous. I mean, it's so you know, it's it's so tightly enclosed. You're so close to the pitch. The well, certainly the old press box was was almost right on top of the action as well. You can see everything. The atmosphere is fantastic. Um, although for big European nights, um, I took my brother being. A, a Celtic man hadn't been in years. He got a big chunk older than me. I got the tickets to take him um, to a European night a few years back. And uh, he, he had to go into hospital for a minor operation, so he couldn't go. So I took my young, uh, I took my oldest boy. We went, uh, and the, the atmosphere on European nights at Celtic Park is just almost unbeatable. Fabulous, just fabulous, you know. So that's good as well. So probably the two, the two best for me will be um, Tynecastle and Celtic Park. In terms of Nelf, a few personal questions. Where's been your favourite place to visit when you've covered football? Mm. When I've covered them, uh, well, bizarrely, a, a, there'd be two, I think, and, and they, they both came, no, there'd be one, I, I was really narrowing it down. It was actually the trip with um, St. Johnston to Luzerne. I thought it was just a stunningly beautiful city. Stunningly beautiful. It was one, you know, you know I've been to the, the, the Athens, the Madrids, the Moscows and all the rest of it, and none of them would actually lure me back. You know, there'd been some places, some places where I certainly wouldn't go back. But Luzerne, I thought, was wonderful. It was a great trip, uh, but it was just a stunningly beautiful city, just on the shores of the lake and all the rest of it. There outdoor cafes and everything. The other one was um, the first trip I did abroad was Celtic, and that was Berlin, a university city. Um, in Switzerland, an absolutely stunning place to go as well. So I think those are probably the two that um, I've enjoyed most. Those were fabulous places, and I'll go back to both in a minute. But Luzerne, I think, probably tops it. Those are the places you've talked about going with football. Where in the world is a place that you have not had the chance to go to yet, but you would like to go to? Um, <clears throat> well, bizarrely, Italy. Um, I, I've never been to Italy, and I, I, I cannot figure it out. I've never been uh, with the BBC. I've, I've never been individually, and the plans were actually to go this year, just to take off and, and go and do a bit of touring. Uh, and it looks as though that's probably going to kind of uh, go by the board. You know, I, I wanted to go and I wanted to go and see places like Turin. I wanted to go and see Rome. You know, I, I just just wanted to see a big chunk of Italy. You know, Roger Mitchell sings its praises. Roger's lived in Lake Coma, and I wanted to see the lakes. Uh, and it, <laughs> It looks as though it'll have to wait until next year or uh, or sometime in the future. But Italy is, is, is probably the one that I'd, I'd re- really love to go to, which strangely I haven't been to. What's your favourite sport out with football? Ooh, um, well, my, my youngest boy, um, Robbie, was the Scottish sprint champion as a track cyclist. Um, uh, so I, I love track cycling. I love, I love watching guys like Skinner and, and you know, and the great guys like, uh, uh, you know, Chris Hoy and all the rest. I love, I, I love that, but I'm a boxing fan. You know, I, I do like the boxing. I mean, I, I, I mean, if there's not football on TV, I'll be part in front of the telly watching BT Sport and the boxing nights. And they, they do, I mean, recently they've been doing some kind of great, some of the great old fights, you know, Foreman and Ali and all the rest. And I, I find the boxing captivating, particularly, I have to say, the heavier weights, you know. 
Um, I, I'm a, I went to see Tyson Fury recently, and I got tickets to go and see Tyson Fury at the Whitehall Theatre in Dundee. He, he's certainly a showman, but I mean, I enjoy I enjoy watching Fury. He's he's not, I think, the, the kind of the, you know, he, he's not one of the greats, one of the traditional greats, but um, a great entertainer and all the rest of it. So you know, boxing is certainly up there. But I, I love the athletics as well. I love the four, the eight hundred meters, but above all. I love the 100 and the 200 meter sprint. You know, I, I was reared on the Alan Wells and the Petromanias uh, of this world. So, you know, I, I love athletics. I love boxing. I love track cycling. You know, um, golf, I, I prefer playing golf to watching it, to be honest with you. Favourite film? Oh, Taken. <clears throat> I'm a Liam Neeson fan. I love, I, I love, I love Taken, you know. I, I lost count of the amount of people he does in it, you know. I do like Liam Neeson, you know. Um, uh, funnily enough, I watched The Irishman recently. I was kind of, at first I thought it was great and I kind of went to watch it again. I was a bit disappointed. It was too long. But I do like Taken, you know. But no, there's, 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 there, you know, there's a whole host of films that have been among my favourites. But I mean, I, I just, I, I, it's almost the Superman thing, isn't it, with, with Taken. Everybody just wants somebody that's a hero that will save them in times of this stress and uh Neeson plays that part brilliantly you know favorite band uh ooh, no i would have you know what i'll pick two if you don't mind that's um, fine D dundee band danny wilson um fabulous you know gary well uh, 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 gary clark who they, they they of course did mary's prayer but you know hugely i think underrated band and, and i wish they'd stay together longer um but uh, danny wilson were, were, were fabulous and i recommend anybody who hasn't heard them although I would imagine most have. Um, and then, and they kind of, you know, one of one something I think was almost a tribute to the other. I love the jam. I, I, and I think they drew heavily on their influence from the kinks. I love the kinks, you know. I, I think they've never aged in terms of some of the stuff they did. So probably the kinks and Danny Wilson as, as a kind of local Scottish band who also had an international flavour. Very, very interesting choices. Um, tea or coffee? Coffee. Beer or wine? Either. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever is available. <laughs> <laughs> and the last question I've got for you, Jim, uh, it's been, I've really enjoyed this chat. You've been involved in broadcasting for so many years. You're still involved now. You're writing articles. You're involved um, in a podcast that you're doing um, regularly with The Courier as well. What advice would you give to anyone listening who is interested in working in football media one day? Um, to, basically, a, if you want to be a journalist, whether it's, whether it's in sport or news or whatever, you have to be a nosy git. Basically, you have to be nosy. You have to want to know. You have to have that. that I mean, that, that, was, that, that, that was the reason I got into it. I was just nosy. I wanted to know what was going on. You know, I was a fan, but I wanted to know what was going on. And you have to have a hard neck in the nicest possible way. You know, you don't have to be a, a, an arrogant kind of uh, individual, but you have to keep chopping doors. You have to keep working away. Uh, and your chance comes. You, you, your chance comes when you least expect it. When I got the call from the BBC to cover the tennis all those years ago, I thought it was somebody winding me up. It wasn't, you know. Uh, they'd finally been beaten down by my letters. Keep chapping doors, keep speaking to people, pick a phone up. It's, you know, pe people, people will happily... People supposedly in positions, but will happily chew the fat with you. They'll have, you know, most people have had a helping hand. I've had helping hands along the way from people. You know, I'm extremely grateful for some of the, the, the helping hands and the advice I've had along the way and the kindness. You know, who was who it? Um, I don't think it was Camus. I can't remember the great philosopher that said it. But, no, it was a great line from, from one of the films, wasn't it? Um, Gone with the wind. All of my life I've depended on the kindness of strangers. 
Um, well, to, to some extent, journalism can be like that. I think just, you know, I've, I've had so many young journalists, I, 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 I'll not name names here, but somebody who I was acquainted with said to me, my young lad <clears throat> is quite keen on finding out about journalism and he's quite keen for advice. Now, you quite quickly, when you speak to somebody, you know whether they're really interested or they're thinking, mm, journalism might be no bad, along with accountancy or traveling the world, you know. You quite quickly know the guys that really, really, really want the proper advice to be in the game. Uh, so, so I phoned this guy and he said to me, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Um, he says, uh, well, yeah, that'd be great. He says, you know, we could maybe meet for a chat. He said, so when could you come through to Edinburgh and see me? <laughs> I, I, I just thought, you cheeky. <laughs> I'll say what I thought. You know, he wanted me to go to drive through Edinburgh to, to, to give him a bit of advice about journalism. I, I couldn't believe it, you know. Um, well, actually, I could believe it. Um, so I, I knew that he wouldn't, and he didn't. He didn't pursue it. So I think you need to be hard naked. You need to be... Um, on the go, you need to take chances, you need to pick phones up to people, you need to not give up. You need to not give up. And you need to kind of, I think, also bring some fresh ideas. By the way, your ideas will get stolen along, along the way. That's part and parcel of it. You'll give people ideas and they'll nick them as their own. That's, it's, that's unavoidable. It's happened to me on several occasions. But just, you know, don't be shy. Pick phones up to people, you know, badger people, speak to people, uh, and, and somewhere along the line, I think, you get your chance, you get your break. I mean, I, I hesitate to say, <clears throat> um, because I'm a great believer that everyone deserves to be paid, uh, f you know, their due, their due amount, due award for, for what they do. Uh, but there are times you will do, you know, you'll do a bit of work, uh, uh, almost as a kind of, almost as a way in. You'll write something, an article, almost as a way in. Um, and I hesitate to say that because I'm not keen on the idea of free work and giving stuff away for nothing. But sometimes you have to kind of say, look, here's what I can do. Here's what I, here are my capabilities, here are my abilities. And I think, you know, then usually your break will come. And, and if you're bold, you take it quite quickly, you know. I mean, I, I, I mean, when I left to go to the BBC and I stuck it three months down in Glasgow, I was missing, my, I was a later dad, I was missing my two kids, chucked it, came back, I'd left the college. My wife had taken redundancy. We went from two good salaries and a big mortgage to nothing overnight. She was unemployed, I was unemployed with two kids. Um, with my first uh, ill-fated foray into journalism, um, because I thought, no, I want to be based in Dundee, and the BBC wouldn't do it. And I came back, and then it was actually the former head of Radio Scotland, Maggie Cunningham, phoned up and said, we want you back, we want you to do Good Morning Scotland. But otherwise, you know, it could have all turned out so differently for me. I could have been skint. Well, I was skint. Myself and my wife had no money. Um, I'd gone to Beeb, stuck it three months, come back, uh, by taking the chance, by leaving a secure college lecturing job that I'd have been in for the rest of my days, Sometimes you take chances, sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. But I'm a great believer that if you've got faith in your own ability, by and large, they do work out. Absolutely, and great advice there. And I've really enjoyed this chat as well, Jim. I wish you all the best, your family all the best, and of course, Dundee United all the best when the football returns. Callum, thanks very much for having me on. Great pleasure. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song